Our Old Testament reading uh, is from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. They travelled from Mount Hor along the road, the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent, vis- sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What does new birth language conjure up in our culture? Throughout the Western world, the press can speak of Christians, sometimes neutrally, sometimes slightly derogatively, but then there are also born-again Christians. There are Christians, and sometimes they're nice people. Born-again Christians, by definition, are awkward, dogmatic, intolerant, bigoted, and thus born-again becomes merely an adjective for nasty Christians. But it has not always been like that. Uh, Forty years ago, it was an, um, uh, it, it was a, an automobile slogan. The uh, Datsun automobile was changing its name to its parent name, Nissan. And at least in North America, we heard endless litanies about the born-again Datsun. And that is also used sometimes in political arenas, at least where I come from. Um, if a Democrat becomes a Republican or vice versa, the press is sure to talk about a born-again Republican or Democrat, as the case may be. So, so what, what does this born-again terminology mean? Is it merely a name change? Uh, is it a word of derogation? Clearly, Jesus thinks that what he's saying is pretty important. Verse 3, very truly I tell you, and then he speaks his mind. Verse 5, very truly I tell you, and he enters into it again. So this is not something that we can leave to the pundits. We should understand what the Bible means, what Jesus means when he speaks of being born again. Or sometimes use it. people use it as a kind of um, ill-defined experience. I had a born-again experience when I was 14 at summer camp. Well, I'm glad you've had some sort of experience at summer camp, uh, but the question is, how is it defined? How is it understood? Well, we'll follow the line of thought by beginning, first of all, with what Jesus actually says about the new birth. That's found in verses 1 to 10. We're introduced to this man called Nicodemus. We're told he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. That put him up at the upper echelons of society. Under Roman rule, he was part of the power structure. And he was a Pharisee, so he was a religious conservative. Farther on in verse 10, if you recall, he's called Israel's teacher. It's probably a title, uh, Regis Professor of Divinity, uh, Grand Mufti. Uh, he, he, He was up at the top of the academic heap. So he's a theological conservative, he has political power, probably he's well-to-do, and certainly he's an intellectual guru. And, uh, and, and yet he comes to Jesus, we're told, at night and asks him a question. Why does he come to Jesus at night? Oh, people end up with a long list of speculations because he was the, he was the Regis Professor of Divinity and he's asking questions of a... Of, of a A local preacher from Galilee? It was a bit embarrassing, surely. Maybe that's why he came at night. He was was coming at night to to hide his face. But that really won't do. When you read all of the gospel accounts of 
Nicodemus, everywhere. He really doesn't care what people think. He stands up on his own two feet and makes his own statements, plows his own furrow. He, he, he's not afraid of what people think. No, the way to find out what John means by coming to Jesus at night is to examine how John uses light and darkness, day and night, in his gospel repeatedly as, as moral contexts. Do you recall when, um, uh, at, at the Last Supper, we're, we're told that Jesus dismisses Judas Iscariot, and John writes, he went out, and it was night. Well, that's not just saying that it was at nighttime. In John's use of symbol-laden language, he's saying he went out into the soul-destroying, utter bleakness and darkness of utter spiritual blindness. So if Nicodemus comes at night, it's one of John's ways of saying, oh, yes, 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 of, of course, it's, it was nighttime. That, that's incidental. But there is a deeper night going on here. He may be a religious thinker, a teacher, powerful and well-to-do. But he comes to Jesus in a certain kind of bleakness that, that means he doesn't see, he doesn't, he doesn't understand. That becomes obviously what Jesus thinks when a little farther on he says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? And in fact, by the end of our section, verses 19 to 21, there's again this contrast between light and darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's walking in the darkness. Well, he approaches Jesus with a certain kind of respect. He calls him rabbi. Now, that's really remarkable. In the second century, a century later, rabbi was an official category. You couldn't be called rabbi, reverend. You couldn't be revved up unless you went to the right schools and uh, had the right education behind you and so on. But in the first century, when Jesus was alive, it was an honorific. So to have the Regis Professor of Divinity come to an itinerant Bible teacher from Galilee and address him as rabbi suggests quite remarkable respect, a certain kind of humility of mind that is, it is pleasant to see. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now that's interesting as well. The, the problem is that virtually every religion has its share of frauds of manipulative people, of faith healers without any real healing going on. Uh, whatever miracles do take place, there are always frauds not far away. And, and there were some in first century Palestine of that order as well. But um, Nicodemus had detected that Jesus was a cut up on that. He was not a fraud. He, he performs miracles in John's gospel that are utterly exceptional. A, a man who is born blind, who is given eyes to see. Lazarus in chapter 11, who actually dies. And, and this cannot be some sort of pseudo-death. He's in the grave long enough to be smelling because of the decay. And Jesus raises him from the dead. We, we, we know that you must be from God. The kind of thing you're doing is a cut up on what other religious teachers are doing. We, we, we know something here. And then you must also ask yourself on the way by why, G why Nicodemus puts this in the first person plural. We know that you are a teacher sent from God. What, we Pharisees? 
we members of the Sanhedrin? I don't think so. Every time you come across the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in John's Gospel, apart from this context, they're not on side with Nicodemus at all. No, this does sound slightly pompous. Uh, Rabbi, uh, we have observed you carefully. And uh, we have come to some conclusions we have regarding your significance. You, you, You must be quite a significant person because you are performing miracles that really do stand out. Jesus, we'll see in a few verses, pricks the pretensions even on what Nicodemus claims to understand. He's actually coming to Jesus in the night. He doesn't understand nearly what he thinks he does. It's, it's like some people who, who show up in, in church or in a Bible study and, and instead of taking the humble place and trying to learn to see what's there in the text, they, they, they come in acting as if they, they know it all already. And Nicodemus has a bit of that touch in him too, as we'll see. Now the question that is of most importance in understanding Jesus' famous expression here, you must be born again, is this. What is the connection between verse 2 and verse 3. In verse 2, Nicodemus approaches Jesus and says, We know you are a man come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replies, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What's the connection between the two? It's almost as if Jesus has changed topic. Oh, you want to talk about car mechanics? I'm going to talk about microbiology. It sounds like a different topic. Or others presuppose there's there's some kind of long-suspended understanding between them, as if Nicodemus is saying, we understand you are a great teacher. Are you really the Messiah? Hint, hint. Are, Are you really the one who was to come? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus replies, in effect, wow. You're asking, am I the one you're waiting for? The question you've really got to ask is whether you can get in the kingdom when the Messiah does come. Are you ready for him? The question is not yet, is he here, but are are you ready for him? You you must be born again or you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom. Do do, do you see? Well, that makes a certain logical connection between verse 2 and verse 3, but you have to put a lot of sentences in there to make it work. No, 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 it's, it's more straightforward than that. Nicodemus is claiming to see something, to see something of the powerful action of God in Jesus' miracles. And Jesus responds, my dear Nicodemus, you don't see anything at all. You you see the miracles, but you don't see the kingdom of God. You you, you don't see God operating in power at all. You you, you can't. You, You can see the mere miracle, but you can't see God operating because you're not born again. You've got to be born again to see that way. And Nicodemus replies, yes, but how can a man be born again when he's old? You're talking rubbish. You can't live life over. You you can't crawl back inside your mummy's womb and come out again and have a second round. It doesn't work that way. So if you're promising some sort of newness, some sort of start over approach, then I'm telling you that that doesn't make any sense. Now, some argue that Nicodemus really thought that 
Jesus was advocating that kind of physical starting over. That he was thinking on a purely material plane, whereas Jesus is thinking on some deep spiritual plane. But, you know, Nicodemus, if he was Regis Professor of Divinity, he, he understood that there are metaphors in the world. He, he wasn't stupid. He, he, he surely didn't think that Jesus was actually advocating crawling back inside your mommy's womb and starting over again. That's merely Nicodemus's way of saying, you're promising too much. Let me come at this another way. Are there not times when you wake up in the middle of the night, halfway between wake and sleep, and you remember something that you've done that is so embarrassing, something that you've said that is so insensitive that you, you sit there and squirm. And it's one of those cases where you, you could squirm your way into being wide awake and break out in a cold sweat, sheer embarrassment. Or you hope that you can roll over and go back to sleep and forget it again. Uh, am I the only one that's had experiences like that? Or, or you're just daydreaming, you're reading a book or something, and you, your mind for some reason flits back to some occasion where you, you were so stupid, you were so insensitive, you hurt somebody, you failed so badly, a, a moral failure, an intellectual failure, a, a, a personal failure. You, you sit there and squirm. Is there anyone that does not occasionally think, Ah, for a man to arise in me that the man I am may no longer be. To use the words of Alfred Lord Tennyson. Or as one editor put it, if life had a second edition, how I would correct the proofs. But you know, you can't do that. You, you can't start over. The moving hand having writ moves on, the poet says. There are no reruns. It's, it's done and it can't be undone. So Nicodemus uses shocking language to say, you're promising something too much. To see this kingdom, you have to be pure, you have to be good, you have to start over, you have to begin all over again, a birth. It, it, it doesn't work like that, Jesus. You're promising too much. And Jesus doesn't back down. He says, Nicodemus, verse 5, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. No one. So the question now becomes, what does this mean to be born of water and the Spirit? To be born of water and the Spirit is parallel to verse 3, born again. Jesus does not have in mind two births, Born of water, natural birth, and then born of the Spirit, a second birth. That's not what he's saying. Born of water and the Spirit is parallel to born again. What, what does he mean by born of water and the Spirit? Why does he change born again, verse 3, to born of water and the Spirit? I suspect he's trying to help Nicodemus understand. You recall a little later on when Nicodemus still doesn't understand? He says, you are Israel's teacher and don't you understand these things? Why should Nicodemus have understood? After all, Nicodemus is an expert in Scripture. What, what, what should he have picked up from Jesus' change from born again to born of water and the Spirit out of Scripture, out of his knowledge of Old Testament Scripture? After all, there's no place in the Old Testament which speaks of literally being born again. But there are quite a number of places that talk about water and Spirit coming together. Perhaps the most striking, which Nicodemus certainly would have known, he would have memorized this passage, is found in the prophecy of Ezekiel 25. 
Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, where God promises in connection with a new covenant that is coming, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So six centuries before Jesus, Ezekiel is is promising a time under a new covenant when God will so cascade his people with water and spirit, the water symbolizing cleansing. They'll be cleaned up. And the spirit symbolizing transformation so that their hearts will be soft, not hard like rock, and pointed constantly, angularly towards sin, but transformed, made new. You will have a new beginning, a new birth. Jesus goes on to explain, don't you understand? Flesh gives birth to flesh. Pigs give birth to to, to pigs. Koalas give birth to koalas. Kind produces kind. The spirit gives birth to spirit. If you want the life of God in your life, if you want the transformation that belongs to the children of God, then you must have God's nature in you, not just human nature. So you shouldn't be surprised you must be born again. You shouldn't be surprised that I say this. The Old Testament has long promised that this is coming. Indeed, you want a further analogy. The wind, he says, it it blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. This works even better in Greek than in English because the same word is used for wind as is used for spirit. Maybe Nicodemus and... Jesus are standing under a sycamore tree on a street corner in Jerusalem. The wind blows those big leaves. Maybe a dust bunny jumps down the road. And Jesus says, listen, look, you see the effect of the wind. But you, you, you can't give me an explanation for how it got here or how it works After all, in the first century, Nicodemus would have known less about the weather than we know today. He wouldn't have been thinking to himself, aha, there's a cyclonic high in the Arabian desert. That's why the wind is running exactly in this direction. No, 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 no. You you don't have an an explanation for for this wind, but you see its effects. You can't deny its effects. The effects are obvious. So it is, he says, with everyone who is born of God. That is, you may not be able to explain the mechanics of the new birth, But where the new birth takes place, you see its effects. Men and women are changed. Their lives are transformed. They're cleaned up. They have something of the life of God pulsating through them. So it is with everyone who is born of God. In other words, for Jesus, a born-again Christian does not mean somebody who's cranky who calls himself or herself a Christian. It doesn't mean somebody who's angular or ugly somebody who's intolerant or mean. It means someone who is a Christian. That is, transformed by the Spirit of God, cleaned up by God, with a new beginning, starting over because of this power of God working in the individual life to bring about transformation. 
Biblical Christianity does not think of conversion as merely a personal decision, although personal decisions are involved, as merely a subjective choice, though subjective choices are involved. It understands conversion to be bound up with the transformation that comes about by the Spirit of God. It involves new birth. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And that's when Jesus offers this rebuke. You're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? They're in the Bible. Study them for yourselves. You've been focusing on the wrong things. So that's what Jesus says about the new birth. More quickly, why could Jesus talk about the new birth the way he does? Verses 11 to 13. How do people think they have the right to talk about God. There are basically three sources of authority that are possible. One is reason. You reason your way to God. You articulate your proofs for the existence of God. You, you, you lay out the ontological argument. Uh, you, you, you talk about the signs and miracles and, and, and so on. And somehow you've got God as the necessary inference of all of your observations. The problem is that means that you're constantly evaluating God. It means you think that your reason is enough to get you to God, whereas the Bible insists that even our reason gets corrupted by our selfishness, by our self-focus, by our sin. Every part of us gets corroded in one fashion or another, including our reasoning abilities. Others say that the way you find out about God is by mystical experience, sometimes helped by hallucinogenic drugs, or by abstemious um, negation, self-negation, so that you flagellate yourself, or you, you starve yourself, and, and somehow you eventually have some sort of experience of the mystical or the divine. Maybe you park yourself on a hilltop for a couple of centuries um, in, in a... In a, in a a movement, a hermitage. I'm not suggesting that each individual has to live a couple of centuries, but in a, in a hermitage that, 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 that has two or three centuries of work, you park yourselves in that environment and, and, and then you, you have some sort of mystical experience together. The trouble is that this becomes so subjective that it's difficult to find any criterion by which you say this truly is of God or versus this is a merely made up. It's, it's a subjective reaction to... To, to, to the stimuli that are around you. Uh, what is one person's mystical experience over against another person's mystical experience? There is no truth criterion anywhere. But the third way, and it is the way the Bible thinks of these things, although the Bible does speak of the need to reason, and although the Bible does speak of personal experience, the Bible says that at the end of the day, the way we find out about God is by revelation. By revelation, God graciously chooses to disclose himself. So here also. Very truly, I tell you, we speak what we know. And we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things. That is, the new birth is something that takes place on the earth. It's an earthly thing, even though it comes from God. And you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Supposing I talk to you about the throne room of God. Will you have the categories to understand that? No, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. 
In other words, Jesus claims to be able to talk about God and about heaven, about the throne room of God, about all things connected with God, because he's from there. I've been there. I've seen it. I've come down to reveal God to you. As was read earlier, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. This word becomes flesh and lives for a while among us. In other words, you cannot come to grips with biblical Christianity. You cannot come to grips with a new birth until you wrestle with the question of revelation. That is, has God himself graciously, sovereignly chosen to reveal himself to us? But there's another little hint in this triplet of verses, 11, 12, and 13, that you must not overlook. I promised we would come to it earlier. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 11? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. First person plural. Who's we? It's not Jesus and his disciples. A little farther on in the chapter, you discover that his own disciples are left far behind. Jesus is not claiming that the disciples have had this revelation from God or that they are the revelation from God. They're they're misunderstanding half of what Jesus says in any case. Who's we? No, no. Jesus is making a self-conscious allusion back to Nicodemus' we in verse 2 and 3. Nicodemus has come to Jesus and said to him, Rabbi, we know a few things. We know by observing your miracles that you are a teacher sent from God. We, we've evaluated things, and that's what we've concluded. And Jesus now says, in effect, we know one or two things ourselves, my dear Nicodemus. I've come from the throne room of God. He switches to the first person singular after he's made the point. That at the end of the day, the truth of the gospel, the truth of new birth, the truth of what God is like, does not turn on the inferences that we may erroneously or non-erroneously draw. They turn finally on God's gracious, kind self-disclosure, on revelation. In the fullness of time, the word became flesh. God's self-disclosure, his self-expression, became a human being and lived for a while among us. That's how we come to know God. So, what Jesus says about the new birth, why Jesus could say what he says about the new birth. Third, why Jesus anchors his understanding of the new birth in a most astonishing Old Testament passage. Verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I'm thankful that whoever put together the church bulletin for the Old Testament reading put in Numbers 21, the account of the snake in the wilderness. Look at it again. Hold it open in front of you. If you were trying to convince people about what the gospel is like, Would you turn to Numbers 21, verses 1 to 7, as a beginning point to explain the gospel? That's what Jesus does in this passage. He knows that Nicodemus, because he's a Bible scholar, will understand the entire context. He can just make an allusion to it as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And he knows that right away the entire story will will cascade in in, in front of Nicodemus' eyes. Why does Jesus pick up on that Old Testament narrative? 
Well, you observe, first of all, that the problem in Numbers 21 is that the people want to stand in judgment not only of Moses but of God. They're going to evaluate God. God doesn't provide them with enough food or enough water fast enough from their point of view. It doesn't drive them to their knees and ask for help. It doesn't make them talk about their dependence or please God have mercy or remind God of his covenantal promises or anything like that. No, no, no. They're ready to curse God and die. They're ready to kill Moses. They're, 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 they're ready to go back to Egypt when it comes right down to it. And on many occasions in the Old Testament, they've had it up to here. They want a, they want a God where they can stand in judgment of God. That's a bit like Nicodemus too. Wanting to stand in judgment of Jesus, make his evaluations, draw his theological conclusions. Instead of bowing under Jesus' self-revelation, under his authority, he's going to stand in judgment of Jesus. What I like about Jesus, footnote, I won't mention what I don't like. And, And God won't have it. God is not a souped up peer, a human being only a little more so where he is one of our contemporaries, one of our colleagues, and we have as much right to judge him as as he has to judge us. It, 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 It just doesn't work like that. The nature of idolatry in the Old Testament, the nature of of rebellion against God is bound up with the assumption that I have the right to stand in judgment of God and do things my own way. And when you start looking at it from God's perspective, that is not only ugly it's an abomination think back to Genesis 3 where Eve initially is seduced by the serpent he begins by saying has God really said you must not eat from any tree in the garden and, and she, she, she starts off well. She, 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 she corrects him. God did not forbid all the trees in the garden. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but we may not eat from the tree at the center of the garden, and we must not touch it either. Well, God hadn't said that. She's, she's going along with Satan insofar as she is picturing God as the cosmic party pooper, the, the, the cosmic killjoy. And, and she, she doesn't like to be told no. But you only begin to see how wrong she was when you think of what she should have said. What she should have said was something like this. Are you out of your crazy little skull? This is paradise. My husband and I walk with God in the coolness of the day. He made us. He's perfect. He knows what is best for us. He's given me a husband who thinks I'm really hot. And... And he's wonderful to me, too. This marriage thing is spectacular. And we work and enjoy the work. And there's only goodness around. And there's no sin. There's no corruption. And God knows best. We owe him our worship, our adoration. We owe him our allegiance and faithfulness. Precisely because he is God and we're not. We're creatures. He's the creator. That's what she should have said. But she wants to stand in judgment of God instead. That's the beginning of all idolatry. I will choose my own gods. I will choose this little bit from the Bible and reject that little bit. God may claim that he's disclosed himself, but I don't like that little bit of self-proclamation, so I'll make my own little bit. And that's the beginning of all idolatry. And God 
won't have it. Thus the account in Numbers 21 of the rebellion against God in the wilderness is merely one of many, many, many passages that Jesus could have chosen that shows the connection between this rebellion in which we stand over against God and stand in judgment against God and the inevitable judgment that falls upon us because of it. But then the narrative goes on to show how God fixes it. And he fixes it not by demanding that the Israelites go out and do some noble deed and thus atone for their rebellion. But rather he provides a simple solution, a bronze pole, a pole rather with a bronze snake on it, to which those who have been bitten need only look and they will be healed. Jesus knows that story. And he contemplates his own future. And he introduces a word in John's Gospel that is always connected in John's Gospel with Jesus being lifted up on the cross. As that serpent in the desert was lifted up and became the sole basis upon which Rebels and idolaters could be accepted back to God. A provision that God made graciously. So Jesus will be lifted up on a pole. The sole basis upon which sinners will be reconciled to God. The sole basis upon which the new birth is finally built. The new beginnings are grounded in Christ's death on the cross. That's the nature of the analogy that he draws. The Son of Man must be lifted up, 14, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He bears our sin in his own body on the tree. And finally, why Jesus came for this mission. That brings us to the verse that used to be best known in the Western world. It's less well known today. The verse that is best known in the Western world today is judge not that you be not judged. People don't always remember the context in which it is found. It's found in the context in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus also says things like, don't cast your pearls before swine, which presupposes somebody's got to figure out who the pigs are. Jesus said it, not me. Judge not that you be not judged has a context, and a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. That's the verse that's best known in the sense that it's most frequently quoted, but its context is often ignored. This verse, when I was a boy, used to be best known. Why did Jesus come for this mission? Because, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It often strikes people as shocking when they first start reading the Bible that God's love is represented as surprising. Somehow in the Western world, we've come to the conclusion that there's probably no God, or if he is a God, he's very distant and and so on. But if he is there and, and he does care for us at all, then, then he's a loving grandfather kind of God. 
In other words, people find it easier today to believe in God's love than in God's holiness. They find it easier to believe in God's love than in God's truth. They find it easier to believe in God's love than in God's judgment. They find it easier to believe in heaven than they do in hell. But in the Bible, what is constantly surprising is God actually does love sinners. The Bible pictures God as simultaneously over against us in wrath because of our sin and rebellion and over against us in love because he's that kind of God. He stands over against us in righteous judgment because we deserve to be judged. We want to be God ourselves. We want to stand in judgment of him. We want to de-God God and make ourselves God. We want to run our own lives, to make our own choices, to establish our own identities. And at the end of the day, that involves de-Godding God. It's the beginning of idolatry. But God, who stands over against us in righteousness, in judgment, also stands over against us in love because he's that kind of God. So much so that he sends his son, his dearest son, in our place to bear our sin in his own body on the tree. Picture John and Mary walking on a beach in Perth, hand in hand. The semester is over, and um, the weather's lovely. They're watching the sun go down in the west as they kick off their thongs, feel the wet sand squish between their toes, and John turns to Mary and he says, Mary, I love you. What does he mean? Well, he may mean quite a lot of things. It it may simply mean that his hormones are pumping and he'd like to go to bed with her forthwith. He may mean no more than that. But, But if we assume that he has a modicum of decency, then... The least that he's saying is something like this. Mary, in my eyes, you are wonderful. Your personality is so winsome. I love your laughter, the smell of your hair, your transfixing eyes. I love your lust for life your vivacity, your engagement with people, your sense of humor. What he does not mean is, quite frankly, you have the personality of Genghis Khan. Your knees remind me of a crippled camel. Your hair is so greasy you could lubricate an 18-wheeler. And your tongue is so caustic, I can barely stand your sense of humor. But, but I love you. In other words, usually amongst human beings, when we say I love you, we are declaring the loveliness of the loved. Aren't we? So what does God mean when he says, I love you, world? What does he mean? Is he declaring the loveliness of the loved? 
Is God saying to the world, for God so loved the world? Is God saying, world, you are so scintillating, I can't imagine heaven without you. Your conversation is so charming. Your wit is so becoming. Your personality is so intriguing. Oh, world, world, I, I, I love you. Don't abandon me now, world, because, because I, I love you. You are, you are everything I cherish because you are so beautiful and, and winsome. But the Bible just doesn't work that way. The Bible looks at human beings and says that morally speaking, they're the Genghis Khans, the people with the crippled knees, people of the greasy hair, the wicked tongue. And he says, I love you anyway because I'm that kind of God. So this God who stands over against us in judgment, rightly so. In fact, the later verses of this paragraph say the same thing. Unbelief Rebellion against God means that God's wrath stands over against us. Look at verse 36. God's wrath remains on them. Yet this same God loves sinners not because they're so intrinsically attractive, but because he's that kind of God. And that is what anchors all of God's redemptive work, not least the new birth. I don't know you this morning. I flew into Perth last night. Most of you I've never seen before. But if you've been a Christian for quite some time, you too need reminding that God loves you not because you're so intrinsically lovable, but because he's that kind of God. And therefore you can rest yourself in his love. It's why the only possible response is Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if you've come maybe dragged here by a friend and all of this Christian stuff is a bit alien to you yet, if you want to know what the new birth is, from Jesus' point of view, reread this chapter. This new birth, this new beginning that cleans up the sin and shame and muck of your life, your rebellion against God, your insistence that you will live your life your way and not God's way. And now you begin to see that this really is ugly. It's in essence idolatry and you want to get rid of it. You want to start over again. Let me tell you, that's possible because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord God, for the new birth of which Jesus speaks. We thank you as Christians that this is something we have known and experienced ourselves and confess joyfully that we love what we would not otherwise have loved and we will fear sin as we would not otherwise have feared sin because of this birth in water and spirit, this, this cleansing of our lives, this, this empowering of our lives and transformation. We thank you that at the end of the day we rest in your love. 
of the love that is finally measured by the gift of your dear Son taking our place on the cross. And for those, Lord God, for whom this is still almost frighteningly new, will you not work in them by this self-same Spirit to cleanse them and transform them this morning, prompting them to raise their hearts heavenward even now where they sit and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For Jesus' sake.